My name is Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Non. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Need abrasives for your shop? Of course you do. It's the number one consumable in the modern metalsmith's workshop. And nobody knows abrasives better than Rob at Weber Abrasives. So be sure to visit webers.net.au the next time you're stocking up so you're working with the best kit at the best prices. Yeah. What have you been up to this week, Alex? I've been practicing on the lathe because um, never have I started working with a tool that has a learning curve quite as steep as this. Hmm. Um, but I've I've finally started producing my first pseudo-precise stuff. And by pseudo-precise, I mean precise enough for the work that I need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I made a set of um, like temporary pins for folders that actually have like a handle on one end, but it's all one solid piece. Um, so I can stop using carbide burrs as my temporary <laughs> pins. Um, but they're all like machined to exact or exact enough um, diameters uh, for the various size pin stock that I use. Um, yep. And it was very, very straightforward, simple process that had to be done very precisely and um I spent like a whole day on it, to be honest, more more time than it's uh, uh, probably smart to admit publicly. But uh, I got it got it happening and it worked and got to throw a lot of chips. And the main thing is I had a lot of fun doing it, which is good. Um, I did a uh, one of my knife studies, as I like to do, on um, it was sort of a combination of liner locks and flippers, flipper knives. Yeah, it looked great. Getting the geometry or the like the the tang geometry of a flipper right is mm. trickier than I thought uh, mm. to get everything to have enough mass in the right places and sit right and all that sort of thing. But yeah, it turned out really really nice, and I um I made pretty straightforward knife all with very safe materials like just a uh, like a dirty stone wash on the blade so that I just could just get it out um, and the handle was um, actually I thought it was G10 wasn't it was canvas micata um, right. I started seeing the layers when I was cutting through it I'm like this isn't G10 um, but it came out it came out a cool knife the the fit up was really nice all the tolerance was really tight had a nice action to it you could flip it very reliably um, and you could break the thing down into every single core component piece all 22 pieces um, and reassemble it at will which was the goal Um, and it was the end of like like eight days of just Mm -hmm. refining things dropping tiny parts and then having to remake them because if you drop something in my shop it's gone (laughs) Um, and like some of the parts are tiny in those things uh, but it came out really good and i gave it to my mate adam for his birthday today as of recording this his birthday today happy birthday adam um happy birthday, and adam. he was horrified that i would give him something like that high end because in the past i've given him things that are not at that high end <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um he's been playing with it all day so hopefully he hasn't cut himself um <laughs> we can hope but i uh, I learnt so much in that build 
um, focusing on just one thing for like a week solid. Um, I've just been, yeah, my, my mind has been buzzing and I immediately, as soon as I got back from giving Adam the first one, I started work on the next one, which is actually, um, I had so many people messaging me after put, posting about the first one that uh, somebody had actually dibbed the second one. Um, but they requested it be they requested it be a Southpaw. All right. Hard to find Southpaw liner locks, uh, especially mm. in the in the custom field. So um, Christmas is coming up, and um, one of you lefties is going to get a surprise. Oh boy! So yeah, uh, so that that this one's going to be quite a bit fancier now that I've actually got it down. And I don't have to play it quite as safe. Um, it's. Damascus blade, um, nice uh, compound handle with a bit of Mokimagane going on in there, and it's it's going to be quite nice. So I want now that I know I've got the mechanics of it working, I want to see how nice can I make one. Slick. Also, ceramic ball bearing uh, washers are the titties. Let me tell you. <laughs> yep, there's first, a reason. First, they... time, first time working with them, I love them. Yeah. The only the only time I've come across them was um, there was a guy I knew that was making custom fidget spinners back when fidget spinners were a big thing, mm-hmm. and he had a, he had a bunch of those like ceramic ball bearing things, and and you spun one of his spinners, it would it would spin forever, just yeah. <laughs> it would just never stop, and I was like, uh, how is that even possible? Uh huh. So it, f- it feels frictionless. You're like, uh, mm, something feels wrong. It, it's it's almost like a making a to make a, a flipper knife and making one that has a good action. It's almost like a fidget spinner, but it's a dangerous yeah. fidget spinner. <laughs> yeah, and it stops. <laughs> it stops very very cleanly, or it should. <laughs> if if your if your flick knife is is uh, is spinning like a fidget spinner, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> it's funny every, every time I, I like I've been slowly moving between each type of folding knife, and every time I get to it, I start talking about how complex it is and, and tolerances and all that sort of thing. And I in undoubtedly always get messages from people saying, they're not that hard. And <laughs> you're p- clearly not paying attention to how I'm making these things. Any folding knife is easy to make, but it's not easy to make well. No. And the walk and talk is everything on a folding knife. And That's unfortunately, really you can't really convey that super well in like social media videos. But I guarantee you, if you had one of my knives in your hand, you'd be like, oh, yeah. Friction folders, you can't, it's, it's hard to get any sort of walk and talk on it. You can get it. It's not mm-hmm. impossible. But like slip joints, for example, the feel of a slip joint is everything. Yeah, and the feel yeah. of that snap open on a flipper and that perfect tight lock up, let me tell you, that's not something you can achieve easily. It's something that takes refinement. And that, that tight lock up is the, is the big thing, like... You anyone can make a flipper that that locks open, but most of the ones you find on the market, when they lock open, the blade like flops around in the mm-hmm. in the in the pivot. It is the most horrific feeling once it's there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, having having a blade that like snaps into place and actually stays where it's at is is the most important thing. And designing it so that it can account for wear, which is going to naturally mm. happen um, on that joint, and it should last for a good long while before that starts being a problem. And there's certain uh, tolerances and, and, and angles and things that you take into account when you do, when you build it to actually allow it to wear and still work 
with that yeah. same feeling and same lockup for years and years and years. And um, there's there's so much more to it. Each each type of knife is a rabbit hole, and I've just been jumping bodily down them and, and loving it. So <laughs> um, when I, when you when you hear me say I'm taking eight days to make a a, a folding knife, it's not just to make one. It's to yeah. it's to just throw myself at it. So because um, I'm not a fucking idiot. <laughs> So no, it sucks not. that I have to publicly say that, but it, you know, I cop it a lot. Yeah. It's the circles my, we run in. <laughs> that's it. That's it. My, my song of the week, though, has a bit of a funny story behind it. I got in my head, like my MP3 player, it has playlists of just bands on it. But amongst that, it's got playlists of like vibes and moods. Yep with songs in those that just fit that mood like i've got like a pump up playlist with like pump up music obviously like you know uh you give love a bad name is the title track um (laughs) and all that sort of thing but i created a new playlist just yesterday um and i call it leg warmers it's filled with those 80s like jazzercise sort of you know fitness music that you'd be wearing (laughs) spandex and leg warmers and that it's just, it's got some absolute jams on it and um like just just the ti- the title of the playlist should sort of sum up and start bringing to mind songs already but um i've been absolutely hammering that playlist all day um and it's actually a really good sort of energy lift sort yeah. of vibe for a workshop um and so of that playlist i had to pick um holding out for a hero by bonnie tyler I like that was exactly the song that was in my yeah. head. Yeah. I was literally thinking like flash dance kind of like yeah. <laughs> immediately. Yeah. I was, it, it was either going to be this or fame. Yeah. <laughs> so I, um, I literally had like holding out for a hero just playing in my head while you were talking. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get the spirit fingers going. That's it. <laughs> but um, yeah, if anybody wants that playlist, let me know. I'll po- post it. I'll post the list of songs because <laughs> you've got to have this in your workshop. I'm telling just trust me. You might be putting your, turning your nose up at it, but trust me on this. You want this in your workshop. So, how about you, Big Fudge? What have you been up to? Oh, um, sadly, it, it's much of the same from uh, from our previous interview I've um, with, with Jamie. I, I have done fuck all. Um, this... No, sinus infection that has then traveled to my lungs. You may hear it in my voice a little bit. I'm a bit croaky. Uh, has not gone away, and it won't go away for a little while, I've been told by the doctors, unfortunately. Because it's a viral infection, antibiotics don't fight it, because they only fight bacteria. Um, and so, yeah, viral infection, it's just gonna, it's st- stuck with me. The only thing I can do is clear my, uh, clear my airways of all of the various green shit that gets made. And uh, hope that it eventually burns off or turns into a bacterial infection, in which case I can start taking antibiotics to fight it. Mm. Um, I'm kind of hoping the former rather than the latter, because bacterial infections then come with a whole host of other problems. Um, but for now, it just means that I, like, I start working for about five minutes and suddenly I'm drenched in sweat and finding it hard to breathe. Um Though I did get some work done um, with my new employee, to training him on the grinder, you know, getting some more grinder time um, behind the belts with him. 
Uh, and he's coming along really well. I'm hoping that in the next couple of weeks we can start doing a regular roster for him to start coming in and doing some regular work. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a little difficult because I'm supposed to be making the stuff that he's supposed to be grinding on, and if I can't work, then there's nothing for him to work on, so... Uh, <laughs> you just find it. all of your, all of your uh, scrap steel collection will start getting smaller pieces. The, uh, I have I've had a whole bunch of failed hammer billets that like I the eye was slightly off or you know something like that and I just wasn't happy with it. All tossed at the bottom of a shelf, and so they've all come out and he's just been grinding on those <laughs> because I'm like you know it doesn't matter if you screw these up because they weren't going to get sold anyway. So just go for it, go ham. <laughs> Uh, and there was actually two of them in there that were actually pretty good, in pretty good nick. Um, but I think it was because they were unknown steel and I wasn't sure how well they would heat treat that I didn't use them. Mm. Uh, and I just said, do it, we'll heat treat them. And uh, we did, and they actually came out great, like they hardened fine. Um, nice. And, and so he handled those himself, and now those are his shop hammers. Um, when he needs to hit stuff, he can use his hammers and not mine. Uh, <laughs> that was that was basically my whole the whole thing behind it. it was like now you can reach your own bloody hammers. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, other than that, it's it's literally just been like up and down from the couch trying to free up the the phlegm in my lungs and not die. Um, you know, because obviously with sleep apnea and stuff like that, I can't breathe at night because the mucus blocks my nose where my CPAP would normally breathe for me. Um, so sleeping has been fun. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, <laughs> um, my song of the week this week, uh, I, I've kind of been uh, listening to a whole range of stuff to the point that I've forgotten most of what I've already listened to. <laughs> but mm. uh, one, one thing I did go back to is uh, listening to a bunch of my old country favorites from back when I was a kid. And... Um, my mum's favorite country band was the chicks, uh, formerly the Dixie chicks. Um, and one of my, one of the ones I kept coming back to recently was goodbye Earl. Um, which is just a hilarious song story, <laughs> um, of like, you know, an abused wife and her friend end up like burying him <laughs> and, and fucking off to Mexico and, and having the ball of a time. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, it's a really fun, fun song and, uh, I, I love the attitude. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that, that's pretty much, pretty much me. Yeah. Cool. And we had, um, probably the most, um, raucously positive response, um, over the last couple of weeks to the Koi Baker episode. Hmm. Like you guys loved having him on. We've got to have him back. Koi, if you're Koi, listening, we're, we're coming for you. Koi is just a fantastic dude. And it was an incredibly informational episode as well. Like I, I, yeah. I went back and listened to it again. Cause I, I wanted to like soak in that information because there was so much there. And here's the thing, like having, having done a lot of work with QMI myself, as everyone knows, um, like we just scraped the surface mm. yeah, so of, much. of, of, and that's just of QMI. And he does pattern welding like you wouldn't believe. So it's, um, yeah, definitely get... We're coming for you, Koi. We're going to get you back on. <laughs> <laughs> handsome bastard. Um, so we have, um, speaking of our listeners, we have a heap of emails that we're going to mm. have to get through. Uh, do you want to get to them first or should we do inspirations? Let's let's do the emails. I think I think we can... 
you know, bash them out. Alrighty, our first one's from Ben. He says, hey guys, it's Ben again. I have a few questions. Is used motor oil good for quenching? Uh, is brushing... <laughs> is is brushing your steel while it is hot before hammering to stop pits from forming? And how do wood handle? Um, he also has a good angle grinder story. He says, my brother Zach was sitting in a chair, one hand on the angle grinder, one hand on an axe head. He was knocking the rust off an axe head uh, with the wire wheel when it kicked back on him. It buried the wire wheel in his crotch. Uh, sorry to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily for him... <laughs> He was wearing thick pants, and it just mm. ripped the buttons of his pants and stopped the angle grinder. His testicles were saved by his GI pants. Loving the podcast. Keep it up, Alex and Sam. Those wire wheels um, will so, catch you. <laughs> yeah, that, it doesn't matter. You cannot run. You cannot hide. One one <laughs> one hand on a wire wheel on an angle grinder is a really bad idea. Like, mm -hmm. oof. Stick that shit in a wire wheel. Yeah, stick that shit in a vice. <laughs> a good vice that's bolted yeah. down to something hard. <laughs> yeah, and if you're using a wire wheel on a bench grinder, have both hands on the piece. Like, it doesn't matter how small yeah. the piece is or big the piece is. Two hands. Otherwise, it'll end up lodged in your piece. Yes, exactly right. So, used motor oil is not good for quenching. No. How, it's like, also tell me you highly haven't to carcinogenic. <laughs> tell me you haven't listened to the Forgecast without telling me you haven't listened to the Forgecast. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we no. have brought this up multiple times. Yeah, we, I'm, I'm just playing with you. Like, we don't expect you to listen to the, every episode. But no, we, we have covered this um, a number of times. But no, use my royal is a terrible quenchant. Terrible idea. Um, is brushing your steel while it is hot before hammering to stop pits from forming? Kind of, yes. Yep. It's like, to ha stop... Ha hammer it's yeah it's it's to stop forging scale into the piece and the scale and that is has what causes the multiple thing. effects yeah. yeah so it's good to keep it brushed you don't have to be as pedantic about it as you'd think um but it's a good idea to keep it brushed keep an especially, eye out for that excessive scale forging especially like finishing when you when you're doing finishing heats when you're doing your final planishing and stuff like that that's when it becomes more important yeah as for how do wood handle, we do actually have uh, plans to do an episode on that topic, so stay tuned for that. Uh, so, next email comes from Steve Ellis. That's Red Snake hey, Steve. Says, G'day, fellas. Damn it, I didn't get my pie pork finished in time. But that's oh. not the reason for my email. I have just purchased my first contact wheel, and I'm excited to try my first hollow grind. My question is, when doing a hollow grind, is it better to start with a blade heat treated at full thickness, or is it okay to rough in those grinds prior to heat treat? Thanks, and keep the great content coming, Steve. Hmm, good question, Steve. It is an excellent question. Um, I know the theory side of it, but I have not actually done hollow grinds myself. Yeah, I've I've done a few now, uh, thankfully. <laughs> like now that I've had a contact wheel for a while, um, and basically it's the same as uh, grinding flat grinds. You can you can rough your bevels in before heat treat if you want. Evenness is the key. Uh, making sure that you have even depth and even height of grind so that there is. Even amounts of material removed from both sides is the most important mm. thing. I would also say that it depends on the thickness because if you've got a relatively thin blade, um, then heat treating before grinding is probably advisable just purely from a warpage kind of point of view and also from a decarburization point of view. Um, 
but yeah, no, like on on most blades that I do, I I, I um, grind in the rough bevels before I heat treat because it saves on belts. One thing we actually tried, um, uh, my mate Broden recently put out a, a stunning cutthroat razor um, because I gave him a, a square of ten mil ten eighty four, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, I make something out of that. Yeah, <laughs> good forging exercise, and he yep. ended up just blowing me away with a goblin knife. Um, but he pre-forged the hollow grinds on his by using a fullering die. All right. Um, it was it was still rough and thick, but he actually th- found that the fullering die was about the same radius as his wheels on his grinder, more or less, and it was enough to actually rough it down to a thinness. Um, and he did it just to tr- just to see, just to have a play around with it and it worked surprisingly well i will say though that hollow grinds remove a lot more material than a flat grind does so you are actually yeah. um you're inviting more chance of warpage to happen by putting a pre-ground hollow grind in doesn't mean to say you couldn't get away with it it depends on the steel depends on the heating setup depends on the quenchant depends on and there's several different factors but xyz um, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah just keep in mind like just from a pure geometry perspective hollow grinds remove a lot more material than a flat grind yeah i mean for the uh, 48 hour dagger challenge dagger i did four hollow grinds on that that was all done i i profile ground it flat ground it so that it was all you know parallel and had its distal taper in it um but then I heat treated it before I ground any of the bevels in <laughs> because yeah. it made it easier to clamp the, um, the file guide to and have all of the flats established and stuff. Um, because yeah, once you've ground the hollows in it, you get much less surface area to grind your flats, like the Ricasso and stuff. It becomes much easier to get those out of whack because there's much less surface area contact with the belt. And so it removes material faster. So you can, I can, I find that I end up messing up my Ricasos if I remove too much before heat treat. Yeah, very envious of the 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 uh, contact wheel purchase, though, Steve. Uh, it's something I really want to get into doing hollow grinds. Um, and um, yeah, don't know what size you got, but um, yeah, hopefully you have fun with it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you get up to. Also good for stripping off uh, this, you know, doing a bit of like uh, bogan flattening. Yeah. Like surf- bogan surface grinding. Yep. <laughs> um, all right. So our next email comes from Alex Potter. He says, hey, guys, loving the show. I had a question about metal. Oh, you came to the right place, Alex. <laughs> he says, I'm a young blacksmith who is just getting into it. I was wondering how the act of cooling the metal rapidly in the quench process hardens it. There must be more to the process than just it contracting rapidly. Thanks for the help. Keep up the awesome work. Cheers. That's one for you, Sam. There's about <laughs> a- to be some big words said. <laughs> that's a that's a good question. I mean, like, yeah, I, I could go into, like, a full three-hour rant on how it works. I, I Whenever would've... I describe it, I use really simplified things that are horribly inaccurate, but very simplified. <laughs> Sam knows he knows the, he knows the real words. I would advise real going terms. to my YouTube channel, going to the playlist section, and looking at the heat treating uh, playlist because that has the full explanation, uh, both the simple and the complex, and also has some visual representations thereof. So, if you're looking for a full explanation that would be where I'd send you. Um, the, the very basic 
thing is, is that it's about the carbon in the steel. Because obviously a steel is just an alloy of iron and carbon. There are various alloys of steel in that they have various metallic alloys like molybdenum, uh, chromium, vanadium. Manganese. Manganese, yeah. So many different kinds. The tungsten, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, but the, the main constituent components, especially in uh, carbon steels that we're forging as blacksmiths, um, is carbon and iron. And the more carbon in the iron, the more uh, crystalline structures will be formed when the steel is cooled from the critical temperature at which the carbon and iron are in a fluid state. So when you heat it up to that critical temperature, that, that temperature at which it becomes non-magnetic or just above that, um, the, the iron and carbon are freely flowing around one another and the carbon moves to the outsides of the various grain boundaries. And then as you cool it quickly, um, the carbon freezes in a crystalline structure. Think of it like a diamond, where it's a diamond is just carbon crystals. Um, and that formation of those that crystalline microstructure is what causes the hardness, because the those bonds are very, very strong and they're rigid. Um, so it, And steel doesn't necessarily contract when it's cooled. Funnily enough, um, steel when uh like high high carbon steel when quenched uh actually it expands when heated but then doesn't contract when quenched that's why katanas curve is because the clay on the spine of a katana allows the spine material to to quench slowly uh and therefore contract to its original size whereas the hardened martensitic edge doesn't contract which is why the the back pulls the the edge in that curve because the back is trying to contract away from that uh, expanded edge section. So, um, yeah. The one con- day I so want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I'm, it, I'm, it's a goal of mine one day. Yeah. I, I want, I, I want to do the full, like, you know, water, um, yeah, glass, like, fish glass, tank. glass fish tank setup. I, I just, I love watching that happen. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, so th- that's a, a fun little factoid for you. And that's why, uh, if you ever watch a Katana quenching video, uh, there is some minor contraction in the edge, so the katana actually bends towards the edge first, because the martensite's cooling faster than the 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 spine, and whatever retained perlite and oster and ferrite, which is the soft stuff, um, contracts and shrinks, and that pulls the edge down. But then, as the spine cools, where there is mostly perlite and ferrite, because none of it is converting to martensite, uh, that contracts even more and pulls that edge back. So. Um, yeah, there's lots of various shit going on in the, <laughs> in the, um, in the steel, but basically the rule is carbon is the thing that's causing the steel to harden by crystallizing the, uh, the molecules of the steel. Um, and so that's why we heat it up and quench it. Hopefully go. that makes sense. Hopefully. If, but otherwise does... do check out those videos cause they are, uh, they are excellent content. Yeah. All right. Our next email comes from Mark DeGeorge. Hashtag chicken. <coughs> Talk about professional. I couldn't stop laughing for <laughs> la- the last half hour of the Koi Baker episode. I actually do have a question. I found an old hammer recently. Very small. I believe it was for hammering or shaping sheet metal or maybe a very old mechanics hammer. Anyway, I wanted to reforge the ends and make it a leafing hammer. When I brought it up to orange, I hit it twice and the steel literally exploded. 
if you were to put an ice cube on your anvil and hit it, it was exactly what this steel did. Was it wrought iron? As usual, thanks for everything. The last three episodes have been particularly interesting. I'll be trying hard, uh, trying quarter Mokimagane soon. Mark George. Thank you, Mark. Um, so I did answer this in an email, just in case. You... Uh, I thought I thought we'd bring it up so that everybody can learn from it, because yeah. it is a dangerous thing to have happen. Yeah, um, and and funnily enough, it's something it it shouldn't be that common because it's very rare that this is done. But uh, there are certain types of hammer, especially cobbler's hammers, which are made to be hitting on leather and sometimes brass nails that are made of cast iron. Um, so they're, they're literally made out of the same stuff you make pots and pans out of, <laughs> you know, like those big old skillets and cast iron does not forge. It just crumbles. Um, so what you'll find is uh, exactly what Mark found was that when you heat it to bright orange and hit it, it goes kapoof, much like grass does under the hammer. Um, and yeah, so that's a really good way to tell that you've got cast iron is that if it turns into dust. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's purely because it's not used in a situation where the face needs to be maintained beyond, you know, like it'll be mirror polished, but it's not, you know, coming into contact with steel very often. Um, I've, come in, I've come across that in um, a couple of sheet metal workers hammers as well, like uh, planishing hammers from car detailers. Uh, really cheap ones <laughs> tend to be that way. I think it comes from the sort of when when you think of cast iron, you think of skillets and pots and things like that, and then they're always sort of rough and lumpy looking and black and things. Mm. But what you don't realise is you can grind and polish cast iron to a mirror sheen. Oh, easy, yeah. It's it's a but but you never see it in that form, and so people don't ever make that connection that it's it could be cast iron yeah yeah no it's a it's it's just a strange one and like i think one of the things that i've found recently was that a few have slipped through in the mass production of modern hammers as well because like these days a lot of hammers produced in india china pakistan the like countries that are mass producing relatively low uh cost hammers are casting all of their hammers out of various steel alloys which is why they're unreliable you know, in this terms of face hardness and stuff, they'll tell you it's 4140 or whatever, but it's not. Most of the time, it's whatever it is, <laughs> you know, old rebar. But of course, get, doing that means that you're ending up melting down a lot of random materials to make your hammers out of. Uh, and occasionally, they'll melt down something that isn't a proper hammer steel. It's just, you know, cast iron. Um, and you, that's why you end up getting modern hammers, brand new ones that you buy off the shelf that crack after like, you know, a couple of hits on a couple of nails, but also are very soft. And you're like, why is it soft and cracking? That's because it's cast iron. <laughs> it's uh, a strange material, really. It really is. It is It is the most annoying material to work with when it comes to, like, blacksmithing. Um, if you're casting stuff out of cast iron, it's quite nice, apparently. Um, but it's uh, it does make the best cookware. It does, yeah. Cast iron is really good. Yeah, as a, but, as a cooking enthusiast. Yeah, so, but there you go. Um, if if that helps, I hope. Um, the other thing it could be that I did think about, but it's unlikely, is that it was red short um, high carbon steel. Again, in this situation, probably unlikely, because red short doesn't normally cause it to crumble into dust under the hammer. That Crack, just, maybe, but not... 
Yeah, it, it'll crack in like multiple directions, so it'll it'll crumble like in inverted commas. I'm doing the biggest bunny ears I can. Hopefully, you can hear them. Um, <laughs> but it, it'll crumble in the sense that it'll crack in like multiple directions, like a lava, like the top of a lava flow. Um, but yeah, it won't won't crumble like dust. Yeah. Oh, well, hopefully that helps, Mark. Our next question comes from Adrian Briel. He says. Dear Sam and Alex, the last episode with Koi was very insightful. I want you to try some copper mai for myself. My challenge is getting stainless steel sand mai to stick properly. My question, will copper weld, or solder rather, to other metals such as stainless steel? What would be your take on stainless steel slash copper slash carbon steel go mai? Love the show. It is inspiring and a big motivator for me. P.S., Sam, I hope your hen gets back on her feet soon. She's actually a lot better. Thank you. That's good to know. Uh, so you can actually braise copper to stainless, but it will only happen cleanly in the presence of silver and tin. Mm. Um, so you would really want... Um, normally it would be done through nor- traditional soldering. Like yeah. uh, It's done in a lot in like um, fermenters or people who do homebrew distillering, uh, distillery work and things like that. You'll, you'll have mm-hmm. to braise copper to stainless steel uh, for that. And it's it's tricky. It doesn't braise quite as beautifully as, as copper does to carbon steel, but you can do it. And theoretically, you could put a thin layer of silver and tin either side of the copper. Well, the tin, um, probably not, because the tin would just melt out. Yeah, because it if melts it was, to like it's sealed, degrees. sealed billet, oh. sealed billet though. Yeah, then you just end up making brass <laughs> or bronze. But the <laughs> the silver might work. But to be honest, adding uh, nickel as well might help, mm. um, like a thin nickel layer. But I don't think if you were to just put it, it could. I could be completely wrong in my theory here. I've not tried this, but you could literally just put a core of carbon steel, uh, a jacket of copper, and then wax some stainless around it, seal it up, and see how you go. Um, like that braise might happen if you get the temperature right. Yeah, I mean, um, I, the only experience I've had was uh, recently. I was having a discussion with my friend uh, Jeremy Wheaton, who makes custom folding knives and uses only stainless in his constructions for his folding knives. Uh, but he solders he he brazes his um bolsters on and we were discussing the limitations of trying to braze or solder uh stainless bolsters onto stainless frames um Mm. because stainless resists all fluxes uh like it's it it just hates flux Mm. in general so everything needs to be stupidly clean and you need to somehow apply the solder without it oxidizing like without any of the surfaces oxidizing and apparently it's a giant pain in the ass to do and he doesn't like doing it because <laughs> um, that's the thing like even if you want to make stan- stainless um sand mai with a carbon steel core and just just stainless jacket on a carbon steel core you can do it and it works it, the process is pretty much exactly the same but uh, as it does like carbon sand mai but it has to be extra clean extra, extra flat, flat and extra vacuumed like zero porosity in your seal like i mean zero for it to actually have it and even a chance of of welding and even then it's sort of hit and miss yeah i mean look at um steve from green beetle 
you know, he struggled yeah. with getting stainless sand mito work like three or four times before he finally succeeded. And he's, you know, like he's got a lot of experience with forge welding. So he does. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I haven't but- tried stainless sand mining because I know how much of a pain in the ass it is. Uh, yeah. I, that's a lie. I did do one billet where I did a, car- a carbon Damascus core stainless sand my axe that ended up delaminating at the eye uh, yeah. <laughs> because it's such a pain in the ass. It really is. Like, even if you do everything right, I mean, obviously you can increase your chances by having like temperature control kilns and, and all that sort of jazz and, and really good welding skills. Like there's, there's good welding and there's great welding. Yeah. Um, being a great welder would help. I'm not a great welder by any stretch. I'm barely even a good welder. <laughs> Most days I'm not even that. Can make things um, stick together. That's about it. That's it. I welded, it held it. That's my rule. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do know though that if you want to successfully braze copper to stainless in a normal sort of like a distillery sort of situation, you need the presence of silver and or tin. Uh, in order to make it work um just the chemistry needs it so whether or not that's necessary in a cumai billet with a stainless jacket maybe yeah i put, you, I, I i would be completely shooting in the dark with that one because i've never attempted you, it you can get silver foil um mm. and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that expensive to be honest silver is not anywhere near as expensive as something like gold um, and to get foil it's such a small amount mm. that y- you may find that it's it's not as cost prohibitive as, as all that. Having purchased quite so, a bit of silver recently, I can confirm this. Um, yeah. And it's melting temperature is almost exactly the same as copper, so uh, it's it, a little I, I think it, it's a little lower, but plus, you know, if if it works, you got a bit of extra bling in there that you can use to advertise <laughs> the bling. Yeah, I got silver in my bling. Mm. How many Damn people right. can say that? Vampire killers. I've been wanting to try uh, like a Kumai style billet where the interstitial layer is gold. That would be insane and expensive. It would be insane. It would be very insane, very expensive, but I really want to try it. Mm. Which does actually bring us into our final email from Chris. He says, hey guys, this is Chris. Just wanted to say the episode with Koi Baker was very insightful to the point I was taking notes at work. (laughs) I had a question I wish I could have asked y'all that episode considering... Um, you can braze steel with brass. Is there a way to perform sanmai with brass the same way you would with kumai? If not, does it have to do with the way it's forge welded or would it be because of how the two metals react with each other? Thanks again, Chris. The short answer to that is yes, you can. The long the answer, long answer, answer is yes, but. <laughs> yes, but. Um as we actually talked about, I think it was a last episode or was it the episode of the Koi we were talking about how forging brass, if you've never forged it before, you should try it because it's freaking weird. I, I think it was with Koi actually, yeah. Um, it's a weird material as soon as you apply heat to it. Yeah. I um, All like, the rules go out the window. The one time I've tried Kumai wasn't actually with copper, it was with brass. And that was a horrible mistake. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the thing you is, you cannot let oxygen get to it. No, and and the other thing is that the the addition of zinc lowers the melting temperature of the material by about two hundred degrees. Right, so mm-hmm. copper melts at about like a, like a thousand eighteen hundred. Yeah, a thousand. Oh, no, not thousand and eighty. Yeah, one thousand eighty. Yeah, yeah, a thousand and eighty degrees. Uh, brass melts at about eight hundred and twenty, eight hundred and fifty degrees. Like it's mm. much much lower around critical temperature. Actually, funnily enough. 
Um, and so I let it get to copper melting temperatures. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a little pinhole in my <laughs> in my weld, and it and shot it out takes. like a super soaker. Um, uh-huh. under the press because I was using the press which was a bad idea um, and so yeah like a, a brass can be done but the other thing I, the other problem I have and this was one I wanted to ask Koi but we ended up running out of time uh, which is why I want to bring him back as well is that um, if he's worked with brass brass crumbles when forged like it is horrific to forge um, you can forge it like you know it requires dedicated care to do it right. Um, and I've tried multiple times and I've tried various different techniques and every time I've ended up running into problems. I'm wondering that even if I got the sheet braze to work, whether I could actually manipulate it to a shape without the brass crumbling inside the layer. Like I reckon the brass would have to be so thin that that wouldn't happen. Like the, the molecular bonds wouldn't shear (laughs) under this force because you couldn't get it above that melting temperature, because then you'd just be squishing the liquid either side, um, yeah. rather than actually forging the material. So you'd have to forge it at close to a black heat, um, which wouldn't be great for the steel, um, unfortunately. No. And, like, any um, any non-ferrous gomai that you want to do, it's not a good idea to sort of manipulate the billet too much. You pretty much want to just press down from the top until it's a bar of the right thickness and then grind. Yeah, un- unless you're Koi, um, <laughs> in which case he uses... Unless, you, unless you're Koi. In which Koi case... Koi is an absolute badass. He uses a rolling mill and, you know, a bunch of other stuff to make it work. And he's also using yeah. temperature-controlled kilns and stuff to make sure that he's getting perfect temperatures. That's um, right. Um, so if you are going to try it, it's absolutely doable and it does look great. I think it looks particularly great when you've got like a high manganese steel as the the, the steel for both the jacket and the outer jacket and the core, mm. and you just get this glowing golden shimmer running down the length of a blade that's jet black. Um, I think it's a really cool look, but it presents certain problems because of things that Sam said. Um, if you're not able to watch your temperature to the finest degree. Um, you're going to have problems not only in uh, setting the braze, but also in remo- uh, reducing the billet down to a, a usable thinness without, you know, squishing all of your brass into a puddle into one corner because it's not as sticky as copper is at heat. Um, and you're finally going to have problems during the heat treatment of that knife um, simply because you're going to, by that stage, you're going to have to expose the brass and then that, just leads to all sorts of problems so yeah, and you can mitigate you can mitigate that by heat treating the entire sealed billet and then grinding into it which is what i then grind do. yeah it, it it's what i would do because i don't have a heat treatment kiln or anything like that um so it, it's the safe bet you just want to keep it away from any oxygen and any is bold and underlined and in a different font <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're getting so close to the melting temperature of the brass at critical temperature mm. that it, I just, yeah, I have nightmares about the idea of trying to heat treat any kind of exposed brass on a piece. Yeah, yeah. It is something that I want to try just because I think it would look killer. 
Um, it, it really does. And you can you can see people do things like Mokume um, inlays as like a combination of brass and copper and nickel yeah. uh, swirling together. Like it's it's a very doable thing. It's just fiddly. Uh, and if you are, I don't know what your level is. Uh, I haven't really given any insight into that, but it's not a beginner task. Um, with the right gear, Kumai, and, uh, and the right goal, I, I'd say that anybody could give it a go and you'd have, you know, by by attempt three or four, you'd probably have a usable billet. Um, but Bumai, as I like to jokingly call it, <laughs> with brass... Um, is 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 a, it's an advanced material for the home gamer. Yeah, I, I had a I had a dream to make a, a certain project out of Boomai, <laughs> and I didn't realize how stupid I was in in going for that before trying co- uh, Kumai. Um, yeah, I, I learned my lesson. <laughs> you certainly did, but you had fun though, didn't you? Uh, until yeah. It, until it went wrong. <laughs> until it went wrong. Yeah. I'm just lucky that it shot out away from me. Yeah. Because, like, famously, I wasn't wearing, you know, because I'm I'm typical. I wasn't wearing a face shield or anything. I was just, you know, it'll be fine. It wasn't wasn't fine. Probably in bare feet, too, you cowboy. No, I wasn't in bare feet, thankfully. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, most of the time when I see uh, Mokume Kumai, I normally see it with nickel and copper. Um Because you know, nickel has a higher melting temperature than copper, so it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt it uh, to be yeah. heated up. So yeah, but I do plan on trying Bumai at some point. Good, as you should again, and regret it. Well, again, probably. That's the last of the emails, so that means it's time for inspiration of the week. Who's been inspiring you? Well, um. I've had the hold of this inspiration for a number of weeks now because we've done a couple of interviews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I introduced you to this uh, to this inspiration of the week. Um, and I came across him because, uh, you know, as I do, I spend a lot of my time surfing YouTube, watching blacksmithing videos. And I've come across a couple of, like, TikTok compilations of TikTok blacksmiths. Uh, I've seen Koi's stuff on there, yeah, funnily enough. A couple of uh, right. our old friends, David Delgadell's on there as well. And um, there was this one guy who was making... The, he he called it the Valhalla Lock. And, you know, I was like, oh, locksmithing, that sounds cool. But the he was working on a piece of tubular steel, rolled hollow section, that was like six inches by four inches and about six meters long. And I was like, mm-hmm. what the hell are you locking? And then I, and then it panned to see a little scale model of a pair of giant oak arch doors right now. Like, obviously this was a scale model, the little tiny thing, but it had like these intricate locking mechanisms and these cogs and, and then he panned over to like all of the pieces that he would had arrayed <laughs> next to this giant Huge bar. pieces. And I'm like holy shit <laughs> what is this guy up to so i immediately looked him up on instagram i immediately went and followed him and he is a fantastic artisanal blacksmith like he is mind-blowingly good he does the most incredible sculpture and moving pieces and stuff like that and he looks like a blacksmith should look like he's got the yeah. he's got the the awesome beard and the long mane of hair and he's just like 
big and buff and i'm like holy shoulders shit. that could carry the weight of the world yeah like you know just picture thor in your mind a little bit <laughs> yeah. and i was kind of like this this dude is living the dream right now um <laughs> and uh yeah no like uh, just everything that he's done i i just see the artistic nature of it and i started like watching his instagram reels and stuff and he talks about his inspiration to just make stuff you know He's always loved making things, and he just wants to make beautiful things exist, much like yourself, Alex. And, but yeah, this this Valhalla lock just blew me away. Just the, the sheer scale. And he's working on his own. <laughs> like, you know, he's, mm. he's not working with a team. He's, he's a single smith, and occasionally gets a friend in to help him carry big things. But, you know, he's building these giant locks for these giant arch, archway doors. Um, all, you know, inter- interconnected and stuff like that with hand-forged brackets and, and stuff like that. I, I just, I desperately wanted to go there and help him. You know, mm. I wanted to be a part of this castle door lock, <laughs> basically. Uh, but anyway, he, his name is Max Randolph Studios. Um, I'm not sure if it's studios on Instagram. I have to double check. But um, yeah, Max Randolph, and he is... A nutcase. Um, in the very best way. I, in the in the like, I only ever say that um, as an as a as a, uh, as a compliment. Endearment. Yeah. No. Um. So it's Max uh, Randolph R A N D O L P H Studios, and it's all underscore. So Max underscore Randolph underscore Studios on Instagram, and yeah, he he does crazy stuff like. Um, you know, pieces, like he's been designing some pieces for, uh, fitting around a grand piano recently, uh, doing like an artisanal kind of, uh, grand piano sculpture, sort of. I don't know, it's, I, I kind of want to know where he gets his creativity from. Like, I want to distill... Hopefully we can get him on the show. I'd love that. That would be amazing. Because, like, distilling his creativity would just be amazing. You know, like... It would just be us ogling him for two hours. Pretty much. He also (laughs) happens to be a Disney princess in that, you know, like, he gets birds just flying into his hands and stuff. Um, There's a a video on his Instagram feed of him, like, just having a honey honey eater in his hand. (laughs) But... Yeah, no, he he's just doing some insanely stuff, and and I just I challenge you to look at even the design of the Valhalla lock, the Valhalla doors, and not be amazed. Yeah, like if you're not impressed by that, I I don't want to know you. <laughs> <laughs> um, because yeah, it, it it's just incredible, just simply incredible. Uh, anyway, you're saying he's simply the best. Simply the better best, than all the rest. Than all the rest. Um, just adding another song to my playlist. Hang on. I hadn't actually seen this video <laughs> yet. I'm just looking through his Instagram feed right now. I've, I'm just looking at the doors because he's just shown the the place where the doors are on, that the lock's yeah. going on. I want to live there. <laughs> it's like Sam a- is not exaggerating at the scale of this. By the way, it's not. You know, people will say, oh, something's really big. And then you look at it in real life, it's like three meters tall. That's not really big. These doors are monstrously huge. Yeah, they're, they're twice the height of a man. You know, they're, yeah. they are huge. And the whole thing, like, is geared. Like, the, the lock, you, know, you you turn a crank handle to, to like, engage and disengage the, the, the locks. 
And uh, it's all built into a, a big old Viking longhouse kind of style building. Yeah. Um, I just, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I just, you know, it, it gives me the fizz. Like, looking at it, just, I want to build something like that myself. Even though I have no artisanal blacksmithing in me, right? Like, I'm not a sculptural blacksmith. What looking at what Max has been doing with this stuff makes me want to do that kind of work. By the way, I love the musical element with the bells. Yeah, that's it. It tells you when you've locked it and when you've unlocked it. Yeah, but yeah, oh, it's just so clever. Ah, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, like it's just a door and a lock, but you look at it and I just I like oh, it gives me so much joy. You guys have no idea how much Sam has been talking about this for the, like weeks. <laughs> I have been lamenting, like I I've loved our interviewees, our most recent interviewees. You know, Coy and Jamie, both amazing guys, and I've wanted to talk to them for a long time. And and you know, like we've learned a lot, especially with Coy. And um, you know, Jamie is a fantastic dude, but I haven't been allowed to talk about my inspiration for like almost a month. <laughs> I've been I've been keeping this bottled up. <laughs> Uh, and you know, it's been great cause me and Alex, like Alex really enjoys this kind of intricate lock style for mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I was really happy when I got to share this with him because it was finally someone that he didn't know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, normally I, I go, Hey, have you heard of this person? He's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. But yeah, no, I was, it was just such a great build and like, I love his attitude. He's always got this great attitude on camera. I bet you he has an 80s workout playlist. I'm, I'm guaranteeing it, yeah. I would be surprised <laughs> if he didn't. But yeah, we're going to have to reach out to him and see if we can get him on the show, because that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, I'm, I'm done now, um, I promise, f- for the next week or so. Um, <laughs> but uh, who's been inspiring you, Alex? Uh, there's only one person uh, at the moment that could be inspiring me with my studying flippers, um, mm. flipper knives, because there's one guy that is absolutely smashing it with the flipper knives um, on the scene at the moment. He's been around for a while, but he's only been doing flippers recently and coming out of the gates strong, like really strong. Mm. It's uh, Jason Lind from San Jose in California. He goes by Lind Blade, all one word, L-I-N-D Blade on Instagram. Um, just his posts, uh, he doesn't show much in posts. He doesn't really post much on Instagram, but his stories, he shows the build processes of these flippers that he's making that are just stupidly clean, mm. like just disgusting. <laughs> it makes me so jealous of his skill set man um the precision that he works within blows my mind and it has been making me push myself to you know get better fit-ups get better tolerances get better like he'll work on the way the various lines of the knife line up in both like so that a a particular row of jimping will line up with the top of the bolster in the open position and then when you close it it will line up perfectly with the top of the lock spring mm. in the closed position and like 
tiny attention to detail like that stuff that you would never consciously notice but it looks like this amazingly homogenous build when you look at it and it's little details like that little things like that that is sort of this is my bread and butter i love getting into that sort of thing you know the uh, a, a real artist most of the nuance of their work will never get noticed um but it, it's no less important to the piece just because it wasn't noticed doesn't mean it's not appreciated on the whole <laughs> and um I could literally watch his Instagram stories all day when he's just talking about each knife that he's making. And he's got a very distinct style and he's sticking with that style, but he's quite new to making flippers and they are beautiful. Uh, he too, I think, has worked with Koi's Steel. Um, who hasn't? <laughs> no, apparently. Only us. <laughs> That's right. Only us, but not for long. No. Um, but... Yeah, um, Jason's work has been incredible, and he is also a really nice guy, and he's been very supportive of my journey with them as well. Um, he's been, you know, congratulating me on on the successes I've had and things. It's just a nice guy. Um, he is criminally underfollowed on Instagram, considering the work that he's putting out. Uh, but I suggest you follow him immediately just so that you get to see those stories that he puts up that shows... Um, real detail shots of his process and close-ups that really show the incredible detail in his work. His attention to detail is just masterful, and, and, I, and I love it yeah, he's, uh, very much. He's done uh, some great mo- mosaic spread. pieces as well. He does, yeah. Um, he's, he's a talented fella, but um, don't know too much about him, to be honest. He's, um, he, he takes what he does very seriously, and um, you can tell it's 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 about getting the art right for him, and I respect that. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. But um, moving on with the emails and inspirations out of the way, that brings us in to tool time. Tool time. And tool time, as always, is tickling your eardrums thanks to the bestest and most wonderlicious knife-making supply company in Australia who also ships internationally, so get on it. Nordic Edge. Next time you're stocking up on goodies for your knife-making shenanigans, be sure to visit nordicedge.com.au first. And tool of the week this week is bolster plates. Now, we're not talking about folding knife bolsters. We're talking about the old-school forging tool. And it looks, I I call it the holy cricket bat because it's basically a long, thick piece of steel with a handle on the end of it. Sometimes they they have a hardy shank on the end of it, sometimes not. Um, But it's uh, like a drift plate, basically. Mm. It's got various size holes running down it from all the way from little quarter inch holes all the way up to maybe uh, an inch round or maybe even inch and a half or two inches is uh, sort of like a um, what you'd see on a swage block when it's held sideways except for little holes <laughs> and it's good for when you're drifting the um, you know the eye of a uh, tongs or on the the boss of tongs for rivets mm. rivet holes and things like that um, and it lifts your work up off the anvil so that when you're punching through you don't drive that punch into the face of your anvil yeah it's it's also uh spectacularly useful like i i've made bolster plates not not handled bolster plates but i've 
basically just drilled a hole in a piece of steel, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, to make a bolster plate. Uh, when I haven't had the right size of Pritchell hole um, on my anvil, like, uh, you know, obviously previous to the, the anvil I have now, which has three Pritchell holes, um, I only had the one and it was a 16 millimeter. And sometimes I needed a 10 millimeter because I didn't want a lot of drag through when I was driving mm. like a 10 millimeter drift through. Um, and so being able to put the bolster plate over the hardy hole, uh, and just use that as my new Pritchell was, was incredibly useful, uh, for that kind of work. Absolutely. Um, it was also used in similar context in, uh, early medieval times as a, uh, a hole, you know, like uh, as a hole in an anvil. Cause obviously a lot of anvils didn't have any kind of holes in them. They were literally just a block of metal. And so having mm. the handle bolster plate meant that you could rest the, the tip or the haft of the bolster plate on the anvil and have it hanging off the edge and actually forge into the material um, over the edge of the anvil, basically holding it onto it with your uh, blacksmith's third hand. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise known as your crop. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but it is a simple tool. I know it's a, a fairly quick tool of the week, but it's something that... You don't see that many people having, but yet, when you think about it, how many times have you tried punching or drifting something over your pritchel hole and realize it's just too big mm. and you start getting that sort of cupping happen and drag through like Sam was talking about? Having a bolster plate in your shop is very quick to do if you've got a drill press or even a hand drill. Absolutely. And Joey Vandersteeg actually did a great video where he uh, made a bolster plate without using a drill at all. Uh, he actually forged just hot punch. Yeah, forged it all out of one piece, hot punched it, and drifted it on his anvil with the help of a striker out of a large piece of steel, um, which actually flows quite nicely <laughs> into the topic of the week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does. And um, we are talking about something that was actually requested by one of you. I have completely forgotten who it was, um, but it's. Talking about um, tips for moving larger stock by hand when you don't have a press or a power hammer uh, or even a striker necessarily. Obviously, striker is, is probably the fastest way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, six pack of beer and you got yourself got yourself a friend for the day. <coughs> um, but there are heaps of tricks that blacksmiths do to be able to move up to some fairly substantially sized diameters of pieces yeah, by hand. With a hand hammer mm -hmm. and, and nothing else. Your anvil and a hand hammer can, you know, I mean, you move 40 mil round on, on that with no problems if you if you know what you're doing. The largest well, I think no I've problems. forged on my own by hand, which I've done on live stream, which is 45 mil square, 1045 um, right. for, a, for a hammer. So um, I did 40 mil round and doing rounds is cheating. Yeah, you take <laughs> it's so much easier. You're taking off volume, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it is it is entirely possible to move that kind of material by hand on your own. It's a lot of work, like no lie. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, even with the trip, the tricks and and cheats and things you can do, it's it's a lot of work, and you want to make sure your um, hammer form is on point. Yeah, because unfortunately. This is one of those cases where most of the time we're going to advocate for using the lightest hammer that you can get away with, because for long periods of time, forging with a very, very heavy hammer is going to be bad for you, um, because it's going to put a lot of excess weight on your shoulder and your elbow and all your joints and, you know, mess you up. When you're forging large stock, you need the weight 
of that hammer in order to get the penetration of force through the material. You know, oh. it, like if you're if you're trying to forge on a three pound billet of steel with a two pound hammer, <laughs> you're not going to get a lot done. It's just going to mushroom over that sur- that surface layer without penetrating that material all the way through to the anvil, which means you're not going to upset anything. You're just going to pooch the edges out and create a lot of fish mouthing. Um, you really need a four pound plus hammer in order to do it, you know, in any kind of efficient way. <laughs> like it can be done yeah. with a two pound hammer. Don't get me wrong. If you're really, really, really <laughs> dedicated and you want to take a lot of heats and lose a lot of material to scale, it can be done with a two pound hammer, but a heavier hammer is going to help you in a long way. And it, it sounds a little bit, um, sort of parallel but um one of the best skills you can learn if you're going to move up in scale of material that you're working is to practice your um surface finishing Mm. because a lot of the ways that you can um you know force multiply and and quote unquote cheat to to move large material is going to mangle the surface of it (laughs) um and so having the skill and ability to uh, blend and planish with a hammer um, is something you really want to learn to do first before trying to take on larger stock yeah. because otherwise you'll end up with ugly projects and nobody's going to want them. So um, the reason I say this is because my favorite go-to is to use um, literally just force multiplication. So I'll forge either over the round horn, uh, the back of the round horn of my anvil, or if I really need to move steel, I actually on use the corner of my Sawyer's anvil. <laughs> I'll hold the work at a 45 degree angle over the... the it's a very rounded chamfered corner on mm-hmm. it. Uh, for, 45 degree angle and I do full body swings, you know, raising the hammer right up over my head and driving it down like a... It's a three and a half pound hammer um, or even a four pound hammer um, straight onto that corner. And boy, that moves steel. I don't care you know how big the piece of steel is you get a ding in it yep. by doing that, Coming, that uh, but it's funny enough <laughs> it mang- it mangles it yeah it does uh funnily enough that's actually one of joey van der Steeg's preferred <laughs> methods uh, i keep coming back to him but he's one of the best uh cases for watching videos of him because he only hand forges like he doesn't use power yeah. power hammers or anything uh and a lot of his techniques come down to force multiplication like you'll see he'll only use the turning side or the rounding side of a rounding hammer and then the corner of the anvil to draw out heavy stock because obviously the rounding face is going to apply more PSI because of the surface contact being smaller than the flat face of a hammer. Uh, And he's going to use the edge of the anvil because again, you're increasing that force over a smaller area. Um, And like, you know, you can use stuff like cross pins, diagonal pins, straight pins, that kind of thing. Anything that's going to minimize the amount of surface contact for the weight of the blow that you're giving it is going to increase the penetration of that blow and therefore increase the movement of the material underneath it because the thing about if you're swinging the hammer as hard as you can a certain amount of force is going to be delivered from the hammer into the workpiece so the more you can focus that force into a smaller area the more damage your hammer is going to do to that area yeah You'll um, so definitely learn accurate I, I call, hammering. I call it Toblerone. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll definitely learn accurate hammering, working out big stock by hand, um, because you need to like progressively hit just next to the last blow that you did. Um, if you've ever missed a blow 
and hit the surface of your anvil and you get that feeling like you missed a, the bottom step <laughs> um, when you're walking down a set of stairs or the, you know that feeling where you step onto an escalator that's not working. Um, your brain kind of does a little, mm-hmm. uh, you know, weird thing. Usually you can get away with that. If you miss hit while driving a full body force blow into the corner of your anvil, dangerous things can happen. Yep. So, like like Sam said, focus on hammer accuracy. I have collected a seven pound sledgehammer to the face by missing a swing. <laughs> There's a video of it on my channel. <laughs> um, he got stitches. I got stitches and a concussion. Um, but yeah, no, it it is one of those things. When I normally, when I work large stock like that, the majority of the work I'm doing is punching and drifting. Uh, like I'll punch, drift, and then maybe fuller. And when I'm doing fullering, I'm doing it in my uh, guillotine tool. Um, sometimes you might, if you have... Another good force multiplier. Yeah, if you have access to a striker, then you maybe want to use a top and bottom fuller and a, and a striker with a sledge, because that's obviously going to give you more force. Um but yeah, fullering tool is a great force multiplier. It's not great for drawing out uh, and that kind of thing I've found, mainly because it's just difficult to finagle it into position every other hit <laughs> to, try, you know, to try and get it to accurately move. I, I find that it's a little bit more effort than it's worth. But for making fullers and stuff like that, it's perfect because you know that's what a fullering tool is for. Um, but yeah, no, the, the big thing is that I'm not really forging that material out most of the time by hand. Um, these days I forge four pounds of billets regularly, but I'm forging them out under the, uh, press because screw doing that by hand. And, uh, before that I would use my striker. I would normally get a striker in either my friend Mick or, uh, or one of my other friends. Um, or I would strike myself. Like I, <laughs> you know, I would get someone else to hold the material. If I didn't trust them to swing a sledgehammer, I'd get them to hold the material and I'd do the striking. Um... But yeah, the, the, most of the time, if you're trying to draw out heavy stock, striker is the best way to go if you don't have access to a power tool. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, hopefully that that helps the, the person that was asking and anyone else who wants to move heavy stock. Yeah, don't be too intimidated by it. It is a practice thing, mm. um, but there it, it can be quite an amazing thing to watch when you have uh, a striker and, and um, a smith working together that have worked together before mm. a lot um, and you're working down something particularly uh, an impressive size piece uh, one of my favorite things to watch is actually uh, the striker gangs yeah, the standing striker in a circle yeah. always sledgehammers are just incredible especially if you get a good team mm. that have been working together a long time and they're like forging out a new like hardy tool or something yeah. like that and they're just ding 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 it's amazing to watch absolutely incredible it's like a clockwork machine that, a lot of it's non-verbal communication as well like when when you get really good teams mm. that have worked together for a long time you'll they'll direct each other without speaking you know it'll be yeah. blows on the anvil or just a look <laughs> and they'll know or the or the world famous Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. It translates to strike now. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but um, yeah, the other thing I will say is if you're working heavy stock, get it hot and make sure it's held at heat for a while before you take it out. Because heat it all the way through to the middle. You don't want a rare steak. Yeah. You want a <laughs> you want a well done steak. Yeah, much like welding Damascus, even if you're working a solid block of 1045 or something like that, obviously there's no layers, you're not worried about delamination. 
but you still need to move that central material. And if that central material isn't the same heat as the rest of it around it, it's not going to move. Uh, and that's also going to... And even outside of that, you can introduce cracks. Yeah, you can introduce cracks. And um, yeah, it's going to cool down the whole billet faster as well, because it's cooling from the inside as much as the outside. So Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, gas forges are probably the preferred method, because obviously you can stick it in there, get it up to welding heat, leave it there for a little while, and then pull it out. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're going with charcoal, you're going to just have to monitor it a bit because the outside's going to be melting by the time the inside's hot. To toast it on top of the fire for a good long yeah. while and slowly move it down in as it goes. It's a longer process, but it's it can be done. Yeah, at, at, a, at the most recent hammer in that I was at, they were forging all of their hammers with uh, coke forges, you know, charcoal, uh, coke, uh, coal. Um, and, you know, that we were getting some work done, but yeah, it did t take a little bit of practice to get it right without melting the corners off your hammers yeah that's it <laughs> but hopefully that inspires people to not be quite as uh intimidated by moving larger stock get out there get yourself some 40 mil round and go for it yeah and i mean you can make hammers like i, I was making two pound hammers out of 30 mil round which is like inch and a quarter um yeah you can make decent hammers out of you know relatively thin stock comparatively to other um, hammer stock it doesn't need to be two inch stock in order to make a decent hammer that's it um, and um, speaking of making things out of large stock there have been some people that have been using very large bolts very. to do their forge cast I'm, I'm excited because I saw Seth Wood was uh, was looking at a large bolt recently and talking about doing something for <laughs> forge cast I'm so happy to see Seth back in the forge so it's yeah the world feels right again yep yeah. oh he's put me out of the cut like, cutlass hammer game <laughs> <laughs> man's making beautiful stuff oh i have to um highlight something that i forgot to mention in a past episode uh, that actually cat van forge reminded me of uh somebody asked for advice on making hairpins uh and i forgot a very key element is you need to coat them with something mm. um raw iron or steel does not do nice things to the quality of your hair um if you if you take good care of your hair which a lot of women do uh, a lot of men do that have long hair um putting just raw steel in there is is not good for it so coat it with something like a, a good like a rust-oleum clear coat or, or something like that and it will help protect the hair um cat was kind enough to reach out and remind me that i forgot to say that yeah, ideally not uh, like an, an oil <laughs> or a wax-based. No, um, no. Thing. You want something that will be a bit more crispy. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, definitely get on that. And thank you, Kat. So, um, if anybody else is uh, planning on joining into the Forgecast Challenge this month, uh, we've got a new another big one coming up for the competition Ooh. at the end after this month is over. So see this as a palate cleanser. Not going to give away any spoilers, but remember, if you're going to join in, we want you to turn a bolt of any size into something cool. We don't care where it is, but we want you to show it to us using the hashtag ForgeCastChallenge. And uh, I, I will take this moment to announce a personal thing. I'm going to be holding a, uh, a challenge very soon where I will be financing the, uh, the, the winnings, and I think it's going to be uh, quite quite fun because the the main prize is quite large so 
Um, look out for that in the near future. Right. I, I think it's going to be fun. Sam will personally come and kick you in the shins. Well, you know, I mean... Anywhere in the world. I wish. Because <laughs> that means I could travel. <laughs> First person I'm coming to visit to kick their shins is you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'll be river dancing. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, if you're going to join in the Forgecast Challenge, use the hashtag Forgecast Challenge. Uh, if you're going to join in Sam's Challenge, you'll have to keep your ears peeled. Mm find out the details of that i know i will be <laughs> so it's your turn to host a challenge anyway i did the dice one yep and now i feel like you just want to get revenge for what i put you through in that mm, maybe <laughs> <laughs> all right so um if you want to send in an email uh, to us or, or ask us a question you can hit us up on social media or on Facebook and Instagram or you can send your question to ask.forgecast at gmail.com and if they're looking for you Sam where can they find you? You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on Instagram, Facebook, Etsy, YouTube, Patreon Redbubble, The Kitchen Sink where can they find you Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram YouTube, Patreon, Redbubble Etsy everywhere <laughs> and um, we will look forward to seeing all of you guys again next week see you then see you then